Hey, this morning we're continuing in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 15, Becoming the Church, Stories of the First Jesus People. What we're going to look at is the first 35 verses. I mean, that's kind of the scope of what we're going to consider this morning. But I want to just read the first 11 verses. I hope you'll read all of chapter 15. Let me, uh, let me lead us. Read with me, starting at verse 1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were, along with some other believers, to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the message of the gospel, excuse me, that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that He accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as He did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. For He purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that, that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Jesus' people are people of the way. We are not the no-way people. We are people of the way. And when you think of the way, you've got to think of Jesus. Now, we know that the way, the expression the way, was an early characterization of the gospel, uh, the movement of Jesus' people. But I think it comes from the fact that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the door, for example. Jesus is the light. He's the shepherd. These are all ways and has, have to do with... Uh, getting through and on and beyond. And those who follow the way, they enter the way, they show the way, they lead the way. So, 
We're people of the way. Not the no way people. We're way people. It really shows up in Acts 15. This is really the Magna Carta of Jesus' people. It's the Magna Carta of the Jews and the Gentile Jesus' people. Jesus' people work through a highly charged issue of great, great importance right here in Acts 15. The magnitude of what is happening here, what transpires here, uh, what is settled here cannot be exaggerated. And the impact of this is huge. And it's all because the Jesus people, the Jewish Jesus people and the Gentile Jesus people, let Jesus be the way. These are the way people. And they can make anything work when Jesus is the way. Now, I encourage you just by and by this week to read Ephesians chapter 2. Especially, if I mean, if you're pressed for time and you can't read the chapter, then read verses 14 through 22. But splurge this week. Read the whole chapter. Read a little bit every day. Meditate on it. Let it sink in. But I mention that because I was thinking this week, if the Apostle Paul was a beat reporter, you know, working for a newspaper like the Gentile Gazette, and he was, a, he was there when they had this conference, you know, taking notes, and then he rushed out of the conference with the results, and he wrote a column, and it was splashed on the front page of the Gazette. Ephesians 2, particularly verses 14 through 22, could be the substance of his column announcing what had happened and what it means for Gentiles. You'll read it in that light. It'll be huge. So read both chapters. It's pretty powerful. But I mentioned that this is like the Magna Carta. I don't know if the Magna Carta is even mentioned in school anymore, but when I was a kid, the Magna Carta was... Uh, it is? Oh, good. Well, the Magna Carta is like the charter of liberties. And our own constitution is really in, was inspired and many important pieces that we thought we thought up really go back to the Magna Carta of, of 1215. That's a long time ago. But this here is our Magna Carta, if you will, our constitution or charter of liberty. You know, we cherish liberty. Just this last week, July 4th, we celebrated our liberty, and that liberty is enshrined in our Constitution. That Constitution guarantees us liberty. Uh, our voice. Our, we have a voice in our government. <laughs> that goes back to the Magna Carta. But the point is, it wasn't always there. Many people do not have that kind of liberty. We have religious liberty, which Tim prayed about. Uh, that goes back. But we cherish that. But there's something very important we have to appreciate, 
especially we who call ourselves or understand ourselves as Jesus people. We have this liberty which we just celebrated. We have this independence. Christ, in the reality of spiritual virtue and value and truth, we are not people of independence. We are people of dependence. Dependence on Jesus Christ. And interdependence, which is to say we are dependent on one another. We are not, so to speak, isolated individuals doing our own thing. In Jesus, we are dependent, and as His people, we are interdependent. And that is huge. And it shows up. It shows up in a big way here in Acts 15. These are the people of the way. Not the no-way people, the way people. And they are the way people because they are dependent on Jesus Christ, not independent. If these people acted independently, we would not have this outcome. We would have no Magna Carta. We would not have this resolution. And that's important for us to appreciate. You see, it is dependence on Christ and mutual dependence on Him that creates interdependence that brings about these beautiful results and the resolve when people are rightly and for good reasons almost helplessly deadlocked in opposition. There's much to be learned from the issue of this chapter. There's much to be learned from the process of this chapter And there's much to be learned from the outcome. And I want us to look at the issue, the process, and the outcome here in Acts chapter 15. Let's look at the issue. The issue was Jesus plus or Jesus alone. The situation was one which we read in which uh, some came down, it said, from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, in the last chapter, a couple of chapters, we were in Antioch of Pisidia. But if we go back in Acts, we remember that some of the first rousing Gentile activity took place in Antioch of Syria. Now, if you've been paying attention to the news at all, wake up, people. I mean, there's a civil war in Syria today. Uh, That's where Antioch was. North of Israel. Today, just as it was then. And, And when these came down, they came down from Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. It is high, higher in elevation, but you, uh, reverentially, you always go up. And they came down, even though on a map they were going up north, and they came to Antioch. Now, you remember when, when the, this outbreak of, of people receiving Jesus Christ that were not Jews, the, the leaders of Jerusalem sent an envoy. They even sent, they sent Barnabas. And remember when he saw what God was doing, he saw, it says, he saw the grace of God and he rejoiced. That was what was happening. But then, some well-meaning 
Jewish Christians, now we know from verse 5, which we read, that these are ex-Pharisees. You know, that happens. You know, ex-military, ex-business, ex, 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 ex. And every, we carry our baggage with us. Because those, those vocations, those things we're deeply invested in, they, we bring them with us into all our areas of life. And they can affect marriages and, and other partnerships and relationships and friendships. You know, we bring what we've learned and we bring it with us and we bring it into the church. Well, that gives us some connection. But these Jewish believers, ex-Pharisees, said... Listen, uh, we're so excited that you've turned to Jesus. We have too. But to really be truly a believer in Jesus, to really be a part of the family of God, to be the people of God in Jesus, two things are required. Circumcision and observance or conformity to the law of Moses, just like us. You've got to conform, basically, to what we are. We're in Jesus, but we're circumcised, and we observe, we obey, we, per, we pursue, follow the law of Moses. So if you'll conform, you'll be full-fledged believers, members of the people of God in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. That's basically what they were teaching. Now, I've got to tell you, that would be very, very unsettling. But that is the issue. Now, just to be sympathetic, circumcision and observance of the law of Moses, this is very, very important. And it, they were identity markers. I've already alluded to it, but I just want to make clear that you understand. This was the way Jews maintained covenant with God. This is the way the Jews allowed the, word to recognize, the world to recognize that they were set apart unto God, that they were His people. So this is not a small thing. It's a very cherished, treasured thing, which we have to have respect for, to appreciate. And to just set that aside was not something easy for them to do. It was what made them uniquely recognized, qualified as a people of God. It was a demonstration of their devotion and love. But see, for the Gentiles, their identity marker was not circumcision and the law of Moses. It was just Jesus. Jesus alone. Now, you know, just an aside real quick. What is, what, what is the yoke of Jesus? Every rabbi had a yoke. You know, the yoke of the law of Moses will be mentioned here. What was Jesus' yoke? It was the great commandment. Love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. And I'll tell you, just as we see throughout, and if that weren't true, then it wouldn't have popped up in all the writings of his followers, his apostles. I mean, it's, this is not something taught in a corner. It's across the pages of the New Testament. And the, again and again, from Jesus to Paul, when you fulfill that great commandment, you fulfill the law and the prophets. And what fuels love? What drives love? What tells love? Grace. Grace that you've received. 
You've been forgiven a debt that you could never repay. When you take that to heart, I mean really, when you take that to heart, it creates a generosity in you. It does. You, you're, you've been forgiven so much, so you forgive much. I mean, we are all the prodigal son. That was taught by Jesus. Or in Luke 7, when he went to the house of Simon, and, and, the, and the woman came in and she, poured, she washed his feet with her hair, and, and Simon said, Rabbi, if you knew who was doing this to you, you would separate yourself. You would distinguish yourself. You would say, hey, I'm a, I belong to God, so I'm going to have nothing to do with this disreputable woman. And that's when Jesus told that quick story about the guy who owned 500 and the guy who owned 50. He says, who's going to love more? The one who owed 500 or 50? Simon's quick on math. 500, he said. And Jesus was paying tribute to her love. But you see, it's not that you owe less, or you owe less, or you owe less, and so you can't love as much. The fact is, is that we all owe an incalculable debt. We all... That's what... When that, when that grips your heart, it changes you. And it, it grips you again and again and again and again. Day in, day out. Jesus plus, Jesus and, Jesus also. That was Jesus plus the law of Moses and circumcision. But don't think this was just a Jewish Jesus people and a Gentile Jesus people issue. It's a modern issue. When I was at the church in South San Francisco, it was a very small congregation, an older congregation, I was 30 at the time, uh, outaged by most of the congregation. But it didn't take long for new people to start getting involved. I mean, Jesus got a hold of these people. I mean, there was Catherine, there was Christine, there was Bob, there was Gary and others. But I mentioned just four by name, but there were more. But what distinguished them was their background. They were users. I'm not exaggerating. Three of those I just named were heroin addicts. Cocaine and other drugs that get a grip on your soul and your life and interfere in your relationships, break down your ability to be responsible, do your job, live normal life in a reputable way. What was interesting too is Three of those four, but there were several that were smokers. Um, there was a time when I used to, you know, I, I really was a partier. And uh, sometimes those things just go together, you know. Well, anyway, God started doing some incredible things in their lives. I mean, incredible. It was exciting. It was exciting to see the power of God working in their lives changing their relationships. But they still smoked. And a delegation, a delegation of some of the members, you know, the long-standing members. You could talk about Bob and Gary and Christine and Kathleen. You, Catherine, you could talk about them as Gentile Jesus people and the long-standing members as Jewish 
Jesus people. And a delegation of Jewish Jesus people came to me and they said, we're a little concerned, (laughs) which is (laughs) under low-balling the whole thing. We're a little concerned that uh, some of these newcomers are smoking right out in front of the traffic going by. The church is on Main Street. If you want to stop at South San Francisco, nobody even, I don't think many people stop in South San Francisco, but if you're going up 101 to San Francisco, you'll see the mountain and South San, it'll say South San Francisco right on the hill. And if you want to go there, you take Grand Avenue. That's the big exit. And we were right up the street on Grand Avenue. And as the people were going by on this main boulevard, here were some people coming out after church, hanging around, and some of them were smoking. And they said, we're really concerned about this. And I began to share with them, just like Paul and Barnabas did on their way, as they made their way down from Syria through Phoenicia, through Samaria, into Judea, and up to Jerusalem. They were sharing their stories of what God was doing in their lives. And when this delegation came to me, I shared what was happening in their lives. And they said to me, Okay, we'll see. But we've never had such problems until you came. They did. They said, we've never, we never had problems like this until you came. And, and I said, well, I understand. Bear with me. Let's pray together because really we just have to leave this in the hands of the Lord. He'll take care of this. We don't have to. What we need to do is show them God's grace and His love as as their family in Christ. But you know what? I knew in my heart, it wasn't, these problems didn't arise with me. These problems, listen to me carefully, these problems arise with the law. You see, no smoking was a law of our Jesus members. They judged them by their law and not the grace of Jesus Christ. They saw only lawbreakers. They didn't see Jesus' people because they were judging them by the law and not the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And as a result, in a very practical way, fellowship was severed. And consequently as well, there was no joy. And there should have been joy. And there was no praise for God. And there should have been praise. There was cynicism and skepticism and pettiness and narrowism. But see, the Lord overcame that because I show them, I I show the Jesus members and the Jesus Gentiles the same grace. And eventually things started thriving. And it was exciting to see. And some of them gave up smoking. I really didn't keep track, actually. But the whole thing took care of itself. Well, if this issue in Acts 15 was not resolved, there would have been two churches. Two churches. Jesus plus Jesus and Jesus also strips Jesus of his lordship, removing his crown of grace and replacing it with a hard hat of works. 
and removing his diadem of love for a rod of condemnation. And Jesus didn't carry the cross for that. Now I realize no one can change his crown and his diadem, but practically that's what happens when we lose sight of the costly, incalculable grace of Jesus Christ. And if we don't know it as incalculable in our own hearts, then I question whether there has been the repentance. Because repentance is really all about seeing ourselves truly as we are. And then, when we see ourselves truly as we are, by the way, when you use the law to evaluate yourself, yeah, there's a lot of negative, but there's a lot of, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good after all. And it's the person who thinks, I'm pretty good after all, that says, well, I don't need that much of the grace of God. It's the person who realizes, I need it all and I need extra, that really appreciates his grace. And that's where real repentance comes. And that is the fuel and the power of the Christian life. It changes the heart. It changes the way you see yourself. But it changes the way God sees you. You see how God sees you too. You realize how much He loves you. And then you love others that same way. Luke says there was no little dispute, which is understatement in verse 2. NIV fixes that for you and just says, it was a sharp dispute. But in verse 7, he says there was much dispute. Peter's speech in verses 7 through 11 is really profound. Now, you have to understand, this. De- did you notice, by the way, in verse 7, these words, after much discussion... See, this this went on for some time. But Peter, when he got up, he he says some things here I want to draw our attention to. And I'm going to look at verse 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. You can look at it in your Bible, but I want to bring out some things I want you really to notice this. Uh, In verse 7, Peter says, me, God effectively he chose to do for the Gentiles. And that is that they should hear the gospel and believe. That's what happened in, when Peter was drawn by the Lord. We, we looked at, at, at all of that in Acts chapter 10. But the key words are, they heard the message of the gospel and believe. That's it. Not the message of the gospel plus the law of Moses and circumcision. Verse 8. Now, you might ask after reading that, uh, is believing enough? Is believing in Jesus enough? And notice what Peter says. God who knows the heart. Now, I'd like to know people's hearts. Sometimes, if you're like me, you do think you can know the heart of another person. But one thing we know for sure is God knows the heart. And Peter appeals to the Lord himself. And he says, God who knows the heart gave his testimony. In other words, he bore witness to what? To the validity of belief in the message. Are you following this? In other words, it wasn't belief plus circumcision plus the law. It was belief in the gospel, that is, in Jesus Christ 
what God had done in Jesus. And Peter says, God validated that. He didn't withhold his validation. He didn't withhold his confirmation until they added circumcision in the law. He validated it when he poured out his Holy Spirit. He says that's something we know something about, we Jews. Because we believe the same way. That's going to be his next coming point. Verse 9, then he says God made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles. He cleansed their hearts by faith. Notice those words? By faith. In other words, by believing. Not by circumcision, not by the law of Moses. They believed in Jesus. God poured out His Spirit. He who knows the hearts cleansed their hearts by faith. By believing. And then, in verse 10, and this is kind of a paraphrase, he says, look, we've put the law or conditions, we who have these conditions, not only we today, but every Jew before us, he says, if we present that to the Gentiles, we are challenging the will of God in doing that. Because God has showed us another way. And then he drives home the point. That's in verse 11. We believe and are saved through grace just as they are. In other words, it's not the law of Moses and circumcision. It's grace alone in Jesus Christ. You really need to take this to heart. This is the climax of what? Peter was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas in verse 12 got up and then they shared about the exciting things God was doing in the lives of the Gentiles. And then James in verses 13 through 18, he puts the lid on this thing. And I just want to bring out three key points. In verse 14, he says, God intervened to choose a people, referring to the Gentiles, for his name. Now, this is a big issue. Because how do you recognize the people of God? Just stick with me for one second. You need a little theology every once in a while. How do you recognize the people of God? The law of Moses and circumcision. That's why it was so important to these Jewish Jesus people. These ex-Pharisees. But now James says, based on the prophets... He says, the, he uses the word people, and this, this word people was reserved for the Jews. Even in the New Testament, they observe it. In the Gospels, in the, in the book of Acts, until this point here. And James himself says, he has made a people, he's chosen a people for himself. Well, that would always refer to the Jews. But right here, he is referring to the Gentiles too. And he says this, In the next verses, he says, this is according to the prophets. In other words, we're not finding this in thin air. We're going to God's Word for this. It's grounded in God's Word. And then, finally, in verses 17 and 18, he draws out the conclusion. This means the rest may seek the Lord. So now the people of God, the tent has been enlarged. The tent of David, which is now Jesus' job to fulfill. He's the one who's the big tent erector. 
And Jesus is saying, come all ye into this tent. And James recognizes it. And he says, no longer are the people of God defined by the law and circumcision. They're defined by Jesus. And so, James completes that process. I want to draw our attention to the process just for a moment in verses 6-18. through I am so impressed that the church in Antioch sent a delegation to Jerusalem. You, You know what our way is? Our way is when, when, when somebody wrongs you, in so many cases, we just say, that's it. What if, what if the church in Antioch had just decided they are so wrong? We'll just start our own church. The new Gentile church. Or the one true Gentile church. Or the Jesus Gentile Church. Or the Latter-day Jesus Gentile Church. Or the First Gentile Church. Or the First first Gentile Church. But no, they sent Paul and Barnabas, and they went down from Syria, Phoenicia, Samaria, into Judea, up to Jerusalem, because they cared. I think they understood that this Gospel is not about getting off and doing your own thing. I mean, isn't it funny how we can have this theology in our head? Jesus alone. But didn't lose sight. I mean, it's so big. I went into the cafe between services, by the way. I was looking for the old clock on the wall to see how much time I had. And the the new clock in there is so big, I couldn't even see it. And sometimes the truth is like that. It just, it's like... My goodness, we've got it up here, but we don't even see how it applies. They got it. You know, they really got it. And they said, this isn't about us being the people of God and then having another people of God down the street. And I, I realize, don't get me wrong, we, don't, not one big, we couldn't all get into one building and all of that kind of stuff. But the point is where people are constantly, we're against you. We're, we're superior to you. We're the better church than you. We've got, a, we've got more truth than you. Yeah, a lot more truth. It's right here. Well, how about in here? They had it in here, and they went up, and they fought, in a sense, for the truth, for the gospel, for Jesus alone, without saying, you don't matter anymore. Or you don't count. I, that, I love that. I'm impressed, secondly, that it was an open forum. It was an open, you noticed in verse 7, after they discussed this. Well, that means both sides of this thing was really played out. And, and you find also, uh, later, if my memory serves me, it's verse 12 and 22, other references. The whole congregation is there. There's the apostles and the elders, and they're, they're the ones at the heart of what, the issues. But the whole church is in on this. The whole congregation. In fact, the word is used that's used is the word multitude. Like in the Gospels, when Jesus is walking around, there's a multitude of people. There's a crowd. There's a throng of people. And we don't, that doesn't mean every member was there. 
But Luke is right. He's saying the whole congregation showed up for this and they were allowed to to be involved. And when they hammered out the final uh, effects of this, this conference, there it says in verse 22, the whole congregation is right there with them in this. I think that's awesome. I'm proud of them. That that impressed me. I'm impressed, thirdly, that they worked it out. They accepted James' proposal. Verses 19 and 20, James says, we, two times. Not the good guys versus the bad guys. And I'm also impressed that both sides submitted to God. That's the issue. My way or God's way. Our way or God's will. Don't think that isn't significant. This last week, I got a journal. Um, most stuff comes email these days, but I still like to hold something in my hands. I got this journal, and, and it, there was this tantalizing heading, meaning the whole journal was dedicated to this subject. It said, the church in conflict, or ten, excuse me, tension in church. I thought, oh, that sounds interesting, especially in the light of Acts 15. And so I opened it up, and right there was an article by Robert Moeller, How to Split Your Church. Quickly, don't take notes. (laughs) (laughs) I just need... (laughs) Okay, number one, pay attention. Number one, focus on your own desires. Two, believe every criticism. Three, focus on your pastor's weaknesses, not his strengths. Four, speak the truth or practice love, but never combine the two. Five, store grievances for future use. Six, forgive only those who ask you to, and only if they deserve it. Seven, hide your sin behind harsh attitudes. Eight, use prayer to unite discontented people and spread inappropriate information. Nine, do whatever it takes to win. And ten, remember, you are on a mission for God. Now, I got to thinking about that. If we just change a word or two, For example, if we just change the word pastor and replace it with mother or father or how about husband or wife or children or friend or how about co-worker or boss, it changes everything. Or if we change the word prayer, the word gossip or water cooler chit-chat, or special counsel. All of a sudden, we don't have ten ways to split the church. We have ten ways to split the family. Ten ways to split the club. Ten ten ways to split the team. Ten ways to split the business. In other words, these things are not unique to the church. They're unique to human nature. Jesus came to change that. We're people of the way, not the no way people. When people say no way, we should be saying way, way, because we're in Jesus. I really think that's important. 
Number one and number ten really tell it all. Focus on your own desires and remember you're on a mission of God. But just how different would number one be? How much better if, if we sought, sought God's desires? Even if we didn't solve the problem, we would contribute. We would, you know, not to the problem, but to the solution. And how about number 10? What, how much better if we asked Jesus to take the lead in our mission? You know, I'm on a mission for you, God. Wait a second. Would Jesus lead this mission? Would he? It's a good question to ask. I'm impressed. I'm impressed that both sides submitted to God's will. I know, I know you guys, and I know, don't misunderstand my heart. I think these things are taught and we're reminded, but I know that Jesus has caused you to change your focus and your mission more than once. And that's the Spirit of the Lord, and that's the evidence of grace. We had a garage sale yesterday. When we have garage sales, <clears throat> I usually have work to do elsewhere. Um, <laughs> I've been involved in a lot of garage sales. I'm sure you have too. But the truth of the matter, and I'm, this, is, this is inevitable. Somebody shows up early and they look around and they see something back in the garage. It's not for sale and they want to barter on that thing. They want you to sell something that you don't want to sell. Right? Yeah. The devil had a garage sale. Did you know that? It drew a pretty big crowd. He had some pretty wicked stuff to sell. But this guy showed up and he saw something in his garage that he wanted to barter. It was the wedge. The devil said, never. That is my favorite tool. There's a reason Jesus' enemy, the enemy of God, is called the devil. Devil means slanderer. Did you know that? And he's called Satan. Do you know what Satan means? Accuser. Yeah, in the hands of a slanderer and an accuser, the wedge. That's the tool of choice, to be sure. What about the outcome? Is it conformity? or community. Thomas Akempis over 600 years ago wrote this. He advised, be patient with the faults and failures of others, for your own faults and failures require the patience of others too. If you're not able to make of yourself what you wish, how can you expect to mold another into conformity to your will? Or as Rita Mae Brown put it, and I thought humorously, the reward for conformity was that everyone liked you except yourself. I mentioned reading Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. I'd just like to read verses 14 through 16. Just listen for this moment. Paul writes, Jesus Himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in His flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose 
was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which He put to death their hostility. And so in verse 20, James advised, he said to the Jews, the ex-Pharisees, he said, don't trouble them. And he said to the Gentiles, we'd just like you to observe four things. Those four things, three of them were dietary. Three of them were dietary, and one was behavioral. But if you put all four together, they have to do with pagan festivals where all those things would be in effect. And that would be it. I'm not saying that it didn't require them to be sensitive with their Jewish brothers, as it's mentioned, who observed these kinds of things. It was a way of creating fellowship through sensitivity to one another. Paul talks about that. Read 1 Corinthians 10. But what he was, it seems like he was really emphasizing the fact that, you know, the, in pagan society where Gentiles, everything, social and civic, was connected with the gods and feasting and celebration. And a lot of times, a lot of uh, unethical, unhealthy, immoral behavior would ensue. And they said, you know, it would really help us too if you would be avoiding some of that stuff. Fair enough. Fair enough. Jesus died for you and for me. That's grace. But Jesus didn't die for you alone. He died to create one people of God. We might ask ourselves, do people see the way in the way I treat others, the way I manage my relationships? Do they see the grace of God through Jesus Christ in the way because they see God's grace in me? Give that thought this week. Start today. And you might ask yourself this, are my scruples, opinions, personal laws and traditions a wall a dividing wall to others because of the way I push my desires, my mission on others. Let Jesus be the Lord of your desires and of your mission. Will you stand with me? <clears throat> Last night, I was about ready to go to bed and uh, against me. Remember, people are the way. People are the way. Uh, and I noticed there was a private message, and I didn't have the time, so I looked at it uh, this morning. It was from a friend. He, had, he and his wife were here at the church for a number of years, and then they, they moved away. And he had, I guess, kind of tracked what was going on with me, and he sent me this beautiful message. It really touched me deeply and made my eyes water. And, but he said he was praying I wrote him back. I, I Someone's praying for you. It really grips you. I said, there is a beauty in life that we can't see with the eye. It's a beauty that would 
that would make artists cry. And I said, you've made me cry. That is the beauty of God's grace. That's what I want others to see in us. That beauty that is genuine, so real. It's not the kind of that division. It's a Jesus wants to become in your life. Pray for us. If when I say amen, you'd like to come forward for prayer, maybe God's touched you in some area of your life, you'd like to pray about that, or you want to pray for someone else, we invite you to come. I'll be here along with some of the other elders and pastors. Let me close in prayer for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank You for the beauty. You are beautiful, Lord. Beautiful One. And uh, Your beauty touches us deeply. It's a beauty that brings tears to our eyes because it is a beauty of goodness, grace, and love in Jesus. We love You, Lord. Thank You in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you.